Amen. Amen, brothers. Open your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and we're in verses 18 through 20. You know, many have commented as you turn there on how many, how much irony appears in the narrative of Jesus' passion in the Gospels. And J.C. Ryle, whom some of you are familiar with, writes this. He comments, um, the trial scene in the, in the Passion Week is profoundly ironic. At first glance, he writes, the Sanhedrin gives the appearance of standing on the law, but in reality, the Sanhedrin breaks the law and Jesus upholds it. The testimony that the Sanhedrin seeks against Jesus is, in the end, not provided by the false witnesses, but by Jesus himself in the claim to be God's son. Jesus stands on trial before the Sanhedrin. Here's another irony. But in reality, the Sanhedrin will stand trial before the Son of Man when he one day returns in glory. The Sanhedrin makes a charade of Jesus' ability to prophesy, but his prophecies all come true. Above all, it is the high priest, not Jesus, who blasphemes because Jesus is indeed God's Son. So his whole point is all of those are great ironies that we see in this drama that we see unfold in the passion of, of Jesus. And really, today we have the opportunity to see yet another irony. Because you see, most people, when they come to the Roman trial of Jesus before Pilate in particular, think of Jesus as being the one on trial. And that is true. After all, Jesus is the one that's being interrogated, right, and questioned. Jesus is the one who's being asked the, the questions before Pilate. But the truth is, it's ultimately, in reality, Jesus who is dissecting and triaging Pilate in this particular text. It's Pilate who is on trial. It's Pilate who we're going to see in a minute who is being diagnosed by Jesus. Now, because a, a text without a context is a what? A pretext? We need to remember where we've been, right? Where have we been? Recall that in the aftermath of Jesus' arrest... Jesus undergoes two separate trials. These are mock trials, phony trials, because they've already decided the verdict, right? From back in John chapter 11, we know that. So this is really a, a formality, especially the Jewish trial that Jesus undergoes. But you first have the Jewish trial of Jesus consisting of three phases. First, he goes before Annas, and we've seen that in interrogation before Annas, the former high priest. Phase two, within the Jewish trial, you have Jesus going before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And then phase three, he goes again before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas in an early morning meeting before dawn. Mark chapter 15, verse 1, and Matthew 27, verse 1, indicate that they formally condemn Jesus in the morning during the day because they've illegally done everything overnight, Right? So those are the three phases that make up the Jewish trial before the Jewish authorities. And that's important to note because now as we enter into our passage, all three of those, of those phases within the Jewish trial have already taken place. And now we have Jesus in his civil or political trial before the Romans. First, as we're going to see, he goes before Pilate, phase one. We'll look at that in a minute. Then Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and that's not recorded here in John, but that phase falls between verses 38 and verses 39 and 40 of our passage, okay? You got to go to the other Gospels to know that. And then you have phase three back again before Pilate, and that's verses 39 through 40. So those are the three phases within the Roman 
trial. Okay, if you were taking my C, any CBI classes with me, uh, I would be. This would be a test question. Okay, how many trials did Jesus undergo? How many phases within each? Two trials, three phases within each particular, um, before the Jews and then before the Roman government. Right. So, now as we begin to look at this passage, it's really important to note also that. John's gospel is the most extensive in recording Jesus' interaction with Pilate. And I think the reason for that is because John's gospel is, has a particular huge emphasis on evangelism. It's got a huge Jewish evangelistic component. In other words, John seems especially interested not only in showing the, the fault of the Jewish leaders and what they did to Jesus on the human level, although we know that it was in accordance with God's eternal plan that Jesus went to the cross, right? But he's especially interested in showing how Jesus witnessed to the Roman authorities concerning himself, in particular, Pilate himself, the Roman governor. Pilate's going to become the recipient here, as we're going to see of some wonderful truths concerning Jesus. And like I told you, one of the ways to look at this whole account, yes, is that Jesus did indeed stand trial before the Roman authorities. But in reality, upon closer examination, it's really Pontius Pilate who is on trial before the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you study this account, I don't know if you felt this way, but you sure do wish that Pilate would have responded different to the amazing witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? I mean, you know Jesus is going to go to the cross no matter what. But on the human level, you sure wish Pilate would have been paying more attention and that spiritually he would have responded to what Christ reveals to him. And so here are three ways that, that Pilate should have responded to the testimony of our Lord. And I want us to apply these to ourselves, obviously. I sure wish Pilate would have been First of all, captivated by our Lord's sinless perfection. And let's apply that to ourselves. I think as we look at this passage and what is revealed here to Pilate and really to us, the readers, we should be captivated, brothers, by Jesus' sinless perfection. We're reminded here again that Jesus didn't go to the cross because he did anything wrong. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he violated some Jewish or, or Roman laws, right? He went to the cross as a sinless, innocent one who by virtue of that blamelessness and perfection alone qualifies to be the God-man to redeem humanity, right? If he sins in any capacity, he can go to the cross and qualify to be our redeemer, our savior. He must be the perfect God-man. Now we've made the point before that only Rome had authority to ex execute capital punishment, to inflict um, the death penalty upon anyone. The Jews didn't have that right. And so here you have the Jewish leaders having to take Jesus before the Roman authorities and they're desperately trying to get Jesus in trouble, right? Look at verse 28. It says that they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. The Jewish Authorities have arrived at their conclusions concerning Jesus and their verdict. It doesn't matter that there's no witnesses. It doesn't matter that no crimes have been committed. It doesn't matter that there's been illegal activity done overnight. They want Jesus dead. And so they want to expedite this murder of Christ. Notice that John's highlighting an important detail at the end of verse 28. He says, it was early morning. Everything in the biblical text is important, isn't it? And when John includes that detail, he's talking about the fact that this would have been sometime around 6 a.m., maybe a little bit after 6 a.m. 
why were these guys up so early? I mean, aren't they tired and exhausted after conspiring all night long? Don't they need like a little siesta or something, right? To rest before this whole, getting this whole show on the road? I'll tell you why they're up early. Because they want to be the first people there in line at the crack of dawn to get Jesus before Pilate so that they can expedite his murder as early as possible. That's how much they hate Jesus. That's how hostile they are toward him. And so they take him to the governor's headquarters, which is another way to translate the the Roman praetorium, which is the governor's official residence. Now, normally, Pilate the governor would have been in a place called Caesarea, but during these feasts, he's in Jerusalem to monitor any major upheavals, anything that can come up. He wants to be easily accessible, so he is in Jerusalem. And notice these guys' hypocrisy in the middle of verse 28. It says that they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Man, what what hypocrisy, isn't it? Here are these guys breaking all kinds of Jewish laws in their illegal treatment of Jesus, and yet they're concerned about being defiled. And there was really no Old Testament law, biblically speaking, that pointed to this. It was really their Old Testament oral traditions, their rabbinical laws that they were concerned about as far as this issue of being personally defiled. And so John is indicating to us, even as he writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that here are these religious leaders more concerned and committed to not breaking their own oral traditions than they are about breaking God's law in the treatment of the Son of God. Mark that in this illegal treatment of Jesus And so Jesus is inside of this praetorium, but the Jewish leaders are are outside. So verse 29, Pilate went outside to them, to the religious leaders, and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Straightforward question, non-threatening. The normal mode of operandi is you're going to come before the governor. He's a pretty important dude, right? He's got a lot to do. You better have some formal charges. So he's asking, why are you bringing this man before me, what are the formal charges against him? Now notice their smug reply in verse 30. They answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So Pilate asks a reasonable question, logical question, something according to the Roman law that he should ask. And what do they do? They get defensive. They get demeaning and condescending with, with someone who is an authority in Rome. It's like they're saying, why would we even bring him to you if he wasn't already guilty? That's their mentality. Their expectation apparently was that all they needed to do is bring Jesus before Pilate and that all they were looking for is just uh, uh, for Pilate to validate their already arrived at conclusion concerning Jesus. That's what they were expecting. Just validate this for us. Let's get this show on the road. Let's get this execution going. Now, if you look at Luke 23, verse 2, maybe you already have, it does tell us that they did level some formal charges by lying to Pilate and accusing Jesus of refusing to pay taxes to to Caesar and thus encouraging others to to do so. And they accused Jesus of of claiming to be king. And Pilate is going to address that in our passage, that Jesus is claimed to be king. But the one about Jesus not paying his taxes and encouraging others Um, not to do so as well, was simply not true. That is deception. Remember in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, 
Some of the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus by asking him, is it lawful for a Jew to pay taxes to the Romans? What would you say? They're trying to trap him. And Jesus answered them that they should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's, right? And they marveled at his answer. And so Jesus never said to anyone that they should not pay their taxes. He was a a law-abiding man who taught his followers that they should do so as well as long as those laws did not over. Uh, uh, overstep God's law. As long as they weren't being called to sin against God, they were to live within the parameters of Roman law. Jesus taught that. And so Pilate to this point is already unconvinced. This should have been the end of the whole thing from a human perspective, except for the other charge that they brought against Jesus. Remember Matthew 26 verse 65 says that earlier when Jesus had stood before Caiaphas at the high priest's headquarters, they had accused Jesus of what? Of what? Blasphemy. Of blasphemy. That he had claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God, right? And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Now, if Jesus was lying, his statement would would be blasphemy, right? And it was a way to stone him according to Old Testament law. But Jesus was simply stating the the truth. They simply don't believe in who he is. And so they label that blasphemy. And so given that charge of blasphemy, even though Pilate could care less about it from the Roman perspective, look at verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now don't miss that. Don't miss that. Essentially, Pilate is granting them some kind of an exception clause here, isn't he? He doesn't see a problem with Jesus, but he doesn't want Jesus' blood upon his own hands. That's so evident throughout the, the gospel narratives concerning Pilate's interaction. So he's being a coward, being the coward that he is, lacking courage. He's giving them flexibility to do what they have already intended on doing, and that is to put Jesus to death. And so they have this opportunity to stone Jesus. That would be the Jewish way. But look at verse 31. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, these guys are such sincere guys, aren't they? Such sincerity and genuineness. Again, what hypocrisy. Though Pilate is essentially giving them freedom to kill Jesus, these cowards don't want any personal part of it, at least from their hypocritical standpoint. They'd rather have Pilate make that decision. They give the air that they're Roman law-abiding folk. But listen, if you've been paying attention to the study of John, then you know that there's a greater reason why they can't kill Jesus by stoning him. John tells us what this reason is if you look in verse 32. This, meaning their refusal to kill Jesus themselves by, by stoning, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Remember how Jesus repeatedly in the Gospel of John, he's told them how he's going to die. Write these passages down. John chapter 3, verse 14. John chapter 8, verse 28. John 12, verse 32. All of those passages indicate by what kind of death Jesus was going to die, and he was going to be lifted up. He was going to be crucified. Jesus had not only told, foretold brothers that the fact that he would die, but he even indicated how he would die. 
that he would die on a, on a cross. So this is prophetic here. More scripture being fulfilled in the providence and sovereignty of Jesus. It will happen by way of the cross in fulfillment of God's word. You see, again, the Pilate and all the religious leaders and all of these individuals in the Gospel of Mark may think that they're even in control of the method by which Jesus will be murdered, but Jesus in reality continues to indicate through his word that he is absolutely in control of even the way that he's going to die. Every step of the way he's in control. But above all, I want you to take note, not only in these verses, but then the verses that we're going to look at, brothers, that through all of this, even as he stands before a corrupt man like Pilate, and you know some of the history about the the wickedness of this man and the rivalry between him and Herod Antipas, whom we're going to see. These are wicked individuals. And then the supposed religious leaders of Israel, even though Jesus is standing before all of these wicked, corrupt individuals, he remains Perfectly righteous, perfectly blameless and innocent. You know, over the years, I I don't know about you, but I marvel at that. I'm just captivated in the study of the life of Jesus by the fact that he lived a perfect, sinless life. That's what we refer to as Jesus' active obedience. His passive obedience was his atoning death on the cross, right? Whereby he paid for sins. His active obedience refers to his perfect law of, of, a perfect life of obedience. That he was sinless is mind-blowing to me. I hope it is to you. Think about 33 years of perfect obedience. And don't just focus on the outside. Don't just focus on Jesus' conduct and actions, Think about his thinking, his thoughts, his priorities, his inclinations, his goals, his attitudes, his love for God perfectly every second of his life for 33 years. How many of us here can raise up our hand and say, hey, for every second of my life, I have perfectly obeyed God and loved him in my heart, never elevated anything above God. Anybody? None of us can. Jesus did it. Active obedience, perfect, blameless, innocent. Oh, I hope that that moves you, that you're captivated by that so as to be compelled to proclaim this Jesus, right? Not only his atoning death, but even how he qualified to get there by virtue of his perfect, sinless, spotless life. And you know what? It would be one thing for him to obey and to be sinless when things were calm and all of that, but he did it even when suffering injustice, brothers. Think about that one for a minute. Think about how easy it is to obey when you're suffering and people are treating you with ridicule and accusing you of things and slandering you and all of that. How, how, uh, how easy is it to, to be righteous and to operate righteously in those contexts, right? In those situations when people are opposing you. Jesus did it even here in the heat of the moment. When he could have sinfully, right, responded, he didn't. He perfectly obeyed. We should be captivated by Jesus' sinless perfection. I sure wish Pilate would have been captivated that way. He wasn't. Secondly, I sure wish Pilate would have been captivated by Jesus' utter royalty. So let's apply it to ourselves. We should be captivated by Jesus' royal position, By his royal position here, he's about to reveal marvelous truth to Pilate 
about his kingship and the fact that he is the truth giver and truth bearer. And Pilate misses this. And you sure wish, again, as you look at Pilate here, you sure wish that he would have caught on to who he's dealing with here. But sadly, he doesn't. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters, i.e. the praetorium, again, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, the language here is not one of sincerity, okay? I think too many people give Pilate way too much credit. This is somewhat derogatory here, condescending. It's like Pilate is asking, and the Greek emphasizes this with this word you at the very beginning of the Greek construction, you are the king of the Jews? You are the king of the Jews? You're the one, in other words, that folks have been ranting and raving about? That's the sense. Are you king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or do others say this, say it to you about me? All three of the other gospels record Jesus answering, It is as you say. Here in John, Jesus is in essence, asking Pilate, have, have you personally arrived at this conclusion? Have you reached this verdict concerning who I am? See, again, Pilate may think that he's trying Jesus, that he's, he has Jesus right on the, on the hot seat, but in reality, with this kind of questioning, Jesus, brothers, is diagnosing Pilate. He's witnessing to this man. Pilate is on trial before the king of the universe right here. Not the other way around in an ultimate sense, in a real sense. Pilate gets somewhat defensive about all of this. Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? In other words, am I one of your countrymen? I mean, he could care less about who Jesus is. It's like Pilate is saying, this has nothing to do with me. This is about you, not about me. Are you or aren't you? That's the sense here. He adds, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? See, Pilate doesn't want any part of this. He doesn't see any fault in Jesus on the human level because Jesus hasn't committed any crime. But he's somewhat taken back. Why is Jesus making him the issue? Pilate is pushing back as well. Pilate has failed to answer Jesus' question. What do you, Pilate, make of my kingship? is what the Lord essentially is asking him. He's not going to let Pilate off the hook. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, Jesus is not denying that he has a kingdom, but he's going to talk to, to Pilate about the, the nature of his kingdom is very different than what Pilate is accustomed to. So he expands on the nature of his kingdom. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, if, if it was about, the, if, about me fighting, I could just get a bunch of, a legion of angels and you guys are done, right? He merely spoke and they fell over. Just, if this was about my kingdom, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now, at first glance, this may seem like a, like a bad idea for Jesus to actually be speaking to Pilate, who can wipe him out from the human perspective, about a, a kingdom, but Pilate, as the narrative unfolds and, and you combine the other gospel accounts, Pilate definitely do, doesn't, isn't threatened by Jesus. He knows in some way, shape, or form that Jesus isn't speaking about something that will threaten the Roman government. That's why he's willing to let Jesus go later on. But building on Jesus' admission, 
Notice what he asks him in verse 37. So you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. This is another way of saying it is as you say. Jesus doesn't deny that he is a a king, but he's not done with Pilate, brothers. Notice, he presses further. Not only is Jesus a king, but as king, he came to deliver the truth. He's witnessing here to Pilate. For this purpose, he says, I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness of the what? Of the truth. And then this staggering claim. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Wow. When was the last time someone came up to you and used words like that? With that kind of authority. You need to listen to to my voice and no one else's voice. Hasn't that been the the tone and the tenor from Jesus throughout the Gospel of John? He has all authority. Exclusively has all authority. Here he is now before Pilate, who has a lot of authority under Caesar. And he's saying, I have all authority because I am the truth. No one ever spoke like that. He spoke like a king, brothers, with absolutely royal position and authority and prestige. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the king and he is the truth. Now, Pilate, because he's blind, doesn't get this. Notice how he latches onto this statement by Jesus and asks in verse 38, what is truth. What is truth? Now, when someone asks you that, if they are sincere, maybe you've had occasions like these in your Christian journey where you've had an opportunity, somebody genuinely is asking something along those lines, that's a great opportunity, isn't it? Because our Christian faith is an informed, factual, reasonable faith. Amen? Our faith has substance, There is substance which undergirds the Christian faith, contrary to every other religion, philosophy, or system of thought where you can poke holes in that worldview. Our faith is a reasonable faith. But you see, Pilate isn't asking the question because he really wants to know. He's known about Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. If he was really interested in the truth, he would have pursued Jesus, wouldn't he? He's being somewhat cynical here. He's being somewhat skeptical. What is truth? With a tone of doubt. As if to say, does does such a thing even exist? Does such a thing even exist? What is truth? Sound familiar? Isn't that sort of the way that our society is right now? Times haven't changed a whole lot. What Pilate asks here, brothers, is as old as the Garden of Eden. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where, the, where Satan, disguised as a serpent, asks, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's twisting God's words, sowing seeds of doubt into Eve, right? With Adam standing there by what the Hebrew would indicate to us. He was right there and never stepped in. Adam, who was called to be the leader of his wife, sowing question and doubt into her head. Did God really say that? Is that really true? And of course it was true. Both Adam and Eve could have answered, yes, that's absolutely true. That's reality. It's what God has said. And he hasn't restricted us from all that's here. He's saying you can partake of everything, but this one thing I ask of you, don't do this. He's twisting God's words, however. This is as old as the Garden of of Eden. 
And this has been the problem of mankind, hasn't it? Ever since. Mankind without Jesus is blinded, deceived, naturally prone to skepticism, to doubting God's word. I love um, Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word, because what he's after is that's the root of our problem. We don't take God at His word. Beginning with the fact that he's told us that in his son, Jesus, in his person and his work is salvation found alone. We don't take God at his word. This is the problem, brothers, that is at the root of human depravity. It's about self-worship and listening to ourselves rather than listening to God and worshiping God alone. And in a sense, this should encourage us here. It should encourage us because there's nothing new under the sun. Yes? Nothing new under the sun. We have the same old problem here, repackaged. Nothing should surprise us about today and what people are, that people are questioning whether there is truth at all. Or really, we're past that, right? We're now in a post-Christian world we're living in now. It's not just what is truth, but they answer their own question. Not only is there no objective truth, but now beyond that, my truth is the truth. Whatever I come up with is truth. And you'd better not even question that, especially if you're a Christian. Those bigots, those haters who say that they're with conviction that this is the word of God. That's the culture that we're living in right now. Times haven't changed. It's the same old repackaged ideology, brothers. But it cuts both ways. Even though that hasn't changed, contrary to what our culture might say, Jesus' truth hasn't changed. Amen? Jesus' truth hasn't changed. Jesus says, I have a kingdom that is not of this world, and I've come to earth to tell people about the truth. And guess what? Post Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, he said, and I have now my truth bearers who are my followers who are to be speaking the truth in love in this wicked and hostile culture. That's why we're here. That's the Great Commission. We're here to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And the righteous living that is in conformity to this Christ, that one day in a new heavens and a new earth, ultimately it will be righteousness that will reign with, along with King Jesus. Amen? Amen? That's what we're looking at right now. Jesus said back in John chapter 14, verse 3, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the source of reality. When you think about truth, truth is reality as opposed to falsehood, as opposed to what is illusion. Truth is reality. I am the truth in the sense that all reality is, is, is found in coming to know Jesus and putting on the lenses of Christ and viewing everything through the lenses of who he is and what he's done and how he calls us to live. Jesus is the truth. And so if you're going to see things clearly in this life, to do that, you, know, you must come to know Christ in a saving way so that you might see the truth and see things for what they are. And brothers, this goes beyond our conversion. This goes beyond our conversion that Jesus is the truth has implications and application for our ongoing sanctification as believers. We never move past Jesus after we're converted. We don't. Didn't Jesus say, teach them to obey all that I have commanded? We never move past Christ and the gospel and his word. We never move past that. Paul made this point in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20. Write that text down. Maybe read it in your small groups. Where he's instructing about putting off sinful 
living and conduct to believers and putting on holiness and Christ-likeness now, functionally speaking. And he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, but that is not the way, believer, you learn Christ. You, haven't, you didn't learn Christ by, in the sense that he's, he, he's continuing to allow you to live in sinfulness, in wickedness. He says you didn't learn Christ that way, assuming that you have heard about Jesus and were taught in Jesus as the truth is in Jesus. He says now you know the truth. You need to live differently as a believer. You're informed by the truth now. You know what reality is as opposed to what is false and illusion and and mysticism and, and asceticism. You know the truth concerning how he wants you to live. No longer live for yourself, but put on righteous attitudes and righteous conduct. Why? Precisely because you know the truth that is found in Jesus alone. And how do we come to know the truth? Through his word, right? John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, the Lord said in his high priestly prayer. And so what Jesus says to Pilate is, I am a king. I'm not only just a king, I bring the truth as opposed to falsehood, which you're living under. What a, that's some authority right there. That's why later on in John chapter 19, verse 11, he tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me, Pilate, at all, unless it had been given you from above. <laughs> Jesus looks at this pilot. Oh, pilot, you, you would have no pull around here if it wasn't for me giving you permission. I gave it to you. Ultimately, I'm doing this because God has pre-planned that I do this for my people. You have no authority over me. He said, I'm right in the face and does that. <laughs> Who does that? Nobody does except the God-man, the Lord Jesus. We should be captivated by that. And I hope that that reality that Jesus is king, brothers, and that he's the source of all truth gives you greater courage in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Think about Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, where it says there that God the Father has, has highly exalted Christ, his son, and has bestowed on, on Christ a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That pretty much covers every place, right? And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the person that we worship. Why do we live such defeatist lives? Struggles, yes. Weaknesses, yes. But this is the king that we worship, brothers. We did not fear And when we do fear in the face of opposition, we need to remember who we worship, who we follow, who we're awaiting to return, our Lord Jesus. So that's pretty definitive royal language there, isn't it? Hardly the language of of defeat. And so we must be captivated by Jesus' royal position as king and, I might add, as truth giver. Thirdly, thirdly, one final takeaway that we should derive is that we should be captivated by Jesus' selfless payment. He came to pay the infinite debt that you and I could never live. They could never pay. Verse 38 again. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And then John adds, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Again, from Pilate's perspective, Jesus poses no immediate threat to, to Rome. Again, on the heels of Pilate arriving at this verdict, this should have been the end of it right here. But at some point, Pilate hears that Jesus is a Galilean, right? 
Luke chapter 23, verse 6 says this. And guess under whose jurisdiction Galilee falls under? A really nice guy by the name of Herod Antipas. Really nice guy. No. Herod Antipas is that same cowardly Herod who didn't repent at the preaching of John the Baptist and eventually had, remember, had John the Baptist beheaded because of his lust and his greed and his man-fearing and all of that. And so somewhere in between verses 38 and verses 39 through 40 in our text, we have Jesus shipped over to Herod Antipas for the second phase of his Roman trial. Don't miss that. The other gospel accounts tell us that Herod is more than happy to see Jesus Right? Like John the Baptist, Jesus has piqued his interest for a long time. Herod Antipas loves a spectacle. He was a clown, the ultimate clown. He was wowed by signs, and he's curious about Jesus, and he's fickle and a superficial man. So much so that Luke 23 indicates that Jesus, when questioned by Herod, said nothing to Herod. Nothing. I mean, the Lord was simply practicing Proverbs, right? Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Herod Antipas was a fool. All Herod wanted was a sign, not to know the truth. And so Jesus wisely doesn't even give him the, the time of day. And so how does Herod respond? Along with his posse of soldiers, all the while the religious leaders continue to accuse Jesus, Herod mocks and humiliates Jesus by putting on a royal king's robe on him. And they slap him, and they ridicule him, and they spit upon him, and they treat him with contempt. The eternal Son of God whom we worship. Interestingly, in the midst of this mockery of Jesus, Luke 23 verse 12 tells us that, that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. If you want to give Pilate credit, think about that verse right there. Luke 23 12, that based upon that treatment, that very day, Pilate becomes good friends with Herod, who is this clown leader. And they become friends because before that they were rivals with one another. And so the shameful treatment of Jesus was the basis for their newfound friendship. So all that happens between verses 38 and ver verse 38 and verses 39 and 40 in our text. And so after Herod tries Jesus, he shipped back to Pilate and that's verses 39 through 40 where we have the third Roman phase before Pilate. By this time, Pilate has already declared to the Sanhedrin that there's nothing Jesus has done worthy of death. I'm just going to punish him. Pilate has concluded, but the religious leaders keep pushing. They're not content with that. They want to have Jesus killed, and they insist on that. And so they've riled up the multitudes by this time, who are now demanding that Pilate do for them as they are accustomed to, according to Mark chapter 15 and verse 8. And what was that, that custom? that the Romans had allowed the Jews to be able to do. Well, Pilate articulates it, right, in verse 39. Look at the text, verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Apparently, this was a common Jewish practice that was granted by the Roman Empire at some point. And so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but, but Barabbas. And John adds this, now Barabbas was a robber. That's John's commentary. He was a robber. In other words, this man is a thief, a member of a rebel group of insurrectionists against Rome. And the Jews, of course, loved guys like that because they were not fans of Rome. And so they would love a guy like 
Barabbas who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire and all of that. So to them, it didn't matter that he was a, a thief and a robber. That's what John is indicating. Can you believe this? He was a robber, and they chose him above Jesus, the righteous one. And that's the irony of this whole thing, that Barabbas actually was guilty of mutiny and treason against Rome, which is what they are accusing Jesus of being. And of course, as the story goes on to tell, Barabbas was released, and you know Jesus was punished, but it should have been the other way around, right? Should have been the other way around. It was Jesus who was innocent, Jesus who was blameless, Jesus who was righteous and is righteous, and Barabbas was the guilty one. I find more irony in that, in an applicational sense to us. Isn't, that, isn't Barabbas, brothers, a picture of us as well? Think about that. This was also true in our case. And this is why we should find Jesus' sacrificial payment so captivating. That he paid for our debt by the sacrifice of himself. Because at the end of the day, we were all a Barabbas. Guilty. Wicked. We deserved justice and punishment. Think about it. Barabbas was treasonous against a human government. But prior to Jesus, we against God's divine government and rule. Though he's our creator. Barabbas was a thief and a robber. We were too in that we robbed God of his glory, of, his gr of gratitude, of worship, of service, of our love prior to Jesus. Barabbas was a murderer who had exploited people. Didn't we as well? Against God and against others in our very hearts, hating and exploiting other people for, in ways that benefited us. See, at the end of the day, Barabbas is a picture of us. Barabbas deserved God's justice, deserved to be punished, and so did we. But instead of God punishing us, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us. Amazing. We should marvel and be captivated by that. How great and marvelous is the self-payment of our Lord Jesus. Amen, brothers? And Pilate missed this. It was Pilate who at the end of the day was really on trial and he failed the trial by not believing in Jesus and his cowardice and pride and arrogance. He missed the one who by faith would have paid for his sins as well. Now most of us in here, as we look at this and think about this, I'm confident that we put our trust in Christ right at face value in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. We haven't missed out on on this payment being applied to us by, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But my prayer is always that for any of us who are here, who haven't transferred trust from self to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be moved to do so by these narratives, including the passion and the suffering of Christ, so that you would not, it would not be true of you that, that you've wasted your life. To not believe in Jesus is to waste your life. And isn't that in keeping with the evangelistic focus of, of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20? These things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, quality and quantity of life, now and forevermore. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can be made right with God. So... I ask you, can the truth be found? Yes or no? Of course. 
Jesus says, I am the truth. It's me right here. You trust in me. You know me. You're in relationship with me. You're going to see things for what they really are, even in this world. You're going to see reality. Listen to J.C. Ryle as we close. Quote, But is it really true that truth cannot be discovered? Nothing of the kind. God never left any honest, diligent inquirer without light and guidance. Pride is one reason why many cannot discover the truth. They do not humbly go down on their knees and earnestly ask God to teach them. Laziness is another reason. They do not honestly take pains and search the scriptures. The followers of unhappy Pilate, as a rule, do not deal fairly and honestly with their consciences. Their favorite question, what is truth, is nothing better than a pretense and an excuse. The words of Solomon will be found true as long as the world stands. If you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, if you do seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you shall understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. No man ever followed that advice and missed the way to heaven. End quote. If you don't know Christ today, I pray that today you find a gracious God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again. And we are, Lord, moved and captivated by the work of your Son, his perfect act of obedience, the way that he remained blameless even in the face of opposition in the heat of the moment, experiencing temptation and testing like we've never experienced because we are not perfect. And then he went to the cross and atoned for sins. Father, thank you for him. I pray that today, as we have divine appointments, people that you put in our lives already, you've gone before us to prepare those contexts where we can speak the truth and love to others and even live life before them and continue to cultivate relationships for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to do so with boldness and courage, knowing that we have a king and that he's coming back to deliver the final death blow, and we can live confidently. Help us to speak the truth with gentleness and compassion, remembering also that such were some of us, but we were washed, but we were justified, we were sanctified in the name of the Lord. Help us to remember that were it not for your grace, we would still be there too. So help that to inform our approach, that we would be gentle and gracious, but do speak up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.